me to be here this evening, and on behalf of the faculty and administration at Southern, we want to say thank you to you as a Kentucky Baptist Church and member of the SBC. Thank you for being a part of the cooperative program and funding the educational system and the mission system that we have as, as Southern Baptist. Uh, it, is why I, it is a major part of why I'm a Southern Baptist, besides, of course, the doctrinal beliefs that I hold. But I am so committed to being engaged in a denomination where we are committed uh, significantly to both education and missions. And so tonight we'll be talking about living in a missional manner, and that's kind of where we're headed for, for the balance of the time with myself. But thank you for allowing us to have the opportunity to pour into men and women, um, and, and hopefully they come back to you um, in the church more effective ministers of the gospel with a greater affection for Jesus Christ. Well, you see up here tonight, and we're, we're going to, let me just kind of give a, a deal here. We, I don't have control over the screen, and so they're, they're going to be working it for me. I may just kind of do like this, and I'm not pointing at you, I'm pointing at them, and that's kind of the way we'll have to roll a little bit this evening. Now, you see up on the screen tonight, what does it say? You are here. All right, I hope that you understand that's the world, and here's your little neighborhood, and here's your house. I, those little phrase, that phrase, you are here, for me, there are so many times when, I, like an amusement park or at a mall, I feel so lost. I've got a particular place that I'm trying to get to, and I, I feel totally clueless even about where I'm at. Have you ever been at the mall or one of those amusement parks, and you look at the big directory, right? You're hunting for it, and you think, yeah, finally! And you get there, and it's set, you look forever, and then it says, you are here. I don't know about y'all, but I don't trust the sign. Right? I'm like, how do they? I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, I'm 44. You think I'm old enough to know better, but I'm thinking, how do they know that I'm here? I mean, that's the first thing that flashes in my mind. And then I begin to look around, and I look at the stores, and I look around, yep, that's where I'm at. And then I start looking around trying to figure out where am I supposed to go? How in the world am I supposed to get there? I think they need to have mall GPS because I'm still not very good, even with a directory sign in a mall. And so I don't know about you. But when I get to a mall or I get to an amusement park and I'm trying to get to a particular place, I'm not even sure exactly where I'm at, and I think I know where I want to get to, but I have no clue how to get there. I feel this way as a dad at times. I've got uh, my wife, Ginger, and I, we have a 16-year-old daughter and, uh, and then 15-year-old uh, twin daughters as well. So two 10th graders and 11th graders. So we're, we're living life right in the middle of the adolescent rush. And um, it's a joy, but there are times even as a dad that I, I feel like I, I'm not even sure exactly where I'm at. I think I know, but I'm not sure totally. And I think I have some sense of where I want to take my family, but I'm not even always certain about how I need to plot the course to get there. Any amens? If not, I need to go home because you probably don't want to hear the rest of it. I just want to confess that up front. I come tonight as a fellow father, as a fellow parent, um, for those of you who have parented already or those of you who are in the middle of that parenting process, listen, we're on a sojourn together. That's the reality of this. In my marriage, there are times when I'm like, where am I exactly and where do I, how do I need to proceed down the, the, down the course? And so tonight, I want us to talk about where we're at and where God wants to take us. And so where he wants to take us, to be honest with you, is he desires that we would live our life missionally in the midst of what I would call a frantic world. Does anybody feel like you're always running at high speed? I do. I do. I look at my week on Sunday night. I look at my calendar. And I try to lay it out and try to block out times for this and that and the other. 
And I just think, man, oh man, in the last 24 hours, my wife went down to Atlanta to visit her parents for five days. One daughter had to be a band thing all day yesterday, so I had to get her to the right place. The, the car ran out of gas yesterday morning, not my car, of course, but I was driving my wife's car, so it's her fault, not mine. Yeah, not really. I should have looked at the gas gauge. I didn't. Dropped her off at the airport trying to come home. I, I could go on story after story after story. And that's the way today sort of played out as well. We live in a frantic world, yet God has called us to live missionally. He wants us to live on mission for him, yet here's our little house in our little neighborhood in the big cosmos, and we're thinking, how in the world are we ever going to pull this deal off in a way that is honoring, that is pleasing, that is, uh, is what the Lord Jesus Christ would want us to live? So my answer to that question, at least in part tonight, is this, is that that I believe that missional living for the church, that's what we're going to talk about the first hour. The second hour, we're going to talk about missional, well, missional thinking for the church in the first session. And then this second session, when we get back, I want to talk about missional living in the family. Like, how do we actually work this thing out? And I'm going to put you to work, because you really don't want to listen to me talk probably for an hour, so I'm going to put you to work in the second session to begin to think through how will you apply some of the things we're talking about. But living missionally, I believe for the church, that's us, it, it requires, the, it's rooted, that missional living indeed is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's rooted in a larger story and it's rooted in the whole gospel. That whole story, if you will, is, is fairly simplistic. I mean, we can sum it up, and you know it well probably already, in four simple words. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. There's the whole Bible in four words. Think about it. Creation. I love the creation story. Matter of fact, I remember a few years back, my girls were in middle school, beginning to wrap up middle school, and we were on our way to church, and I, I began to, to probe them a little bit and, and ask them about a neighbor across the street, a little boy named Zachary, he was seven years old at the time, began to probe them what they knew. They had been spending some time with him a little bit, playing with him and um, just encouraging him new kid to the neighborhood, I began to ask them what they knew about his spiritual condition. And after a few minutes of conversation, all three of them indicated that, that to their knowledge and the conversation they had had with Zachary, he didn't know Jesus Christ as, as his Savior. So I began sharing with, think about this, three preteens, that it's important to make space in your life for your neighbors, even if they're seven-year-old little boys, right? that there's some, something you got to do to make relationship and provide space in your life because building those relationships allow and afford for us the opportunity to share the gospel with them eventually and to build relationship with the family across the street. So that conversation began to roll, and, and after they confirmed that, to their knowledge, Zachary didn't know Jesus Christ as Savior, I began to say, well, how would you, if you have an opportunity in the next month or two, how would you begin that conversation with Zachary to share Jesus with him? What, what would that opportunity look like? And one of my daughters, my oldest daughter, Daly, she, she said somewhat, uh, I guess incredulously is a good adverb, if I can even get that word out, but she said, with Genesis 1-1, of course, and, it, and the way she said it, I didn't even do it right, but the way she said it was like, it wasn't disrespectful, but it was kind of like, Dad, come on, how, where else would I begin sharing the gospel with anybody besides Genesis 1-1? I had not coached them on that. 
It was just her answer. Genesis 1-1. Well, the other two agreed. I said, well, all right, let's, let's keep moving. Where would you, so they quoted Genesis 1-1 in the beginning, God. And then they began to bounce to, to this promised seed in Genesis 3 and then to Genesis 12 with Abraham and the covenant and the promise that all nations would be blessed through his family. And, and then they proceeded to the um, incarnation of Christ in Matthew 1 and John 1, the word became flesh. And we're just having a conversation. We're, we're, they're, they're just rolling it off as we're talking on the way to church. And then they begin to talk about Christ's life and his death and his resurrection and then the heaven to come in Revelation. And so in a matter of 10 minutes on the way to church, they laid out this beautiful gospel presentation in our car. First of all, the dad in me is like, yes! But here's what I love the most. They began that conversation with creation. And creation is that place where God made this beautiful environment, this perfect thing for Adam and Eve to dwell and to enjoy him and enjoy the pleasures of life to the fullest. And matter of fact, the Lord gave them a a very clear command. What was that? Be fruitful, multiply, and what? Y'all can talk out loud, it's all right, because the more you talk, the less I talk. Be fruitful, right? Multiply, be be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Fill the earth with what? People, children, but not only that, because when we read that Genesis 1 and 2 account, there's all kind of temple language there. There There's this imagery of being in God's presence in his temple. And what he's saying is, hey, not only do I want you to fill it with people, but he says, I want you to fill it with my glory. I want you to expand my, my good word about who I am and the relationship you have with me, I want it to go to all the eventual nations. And I want you to tell the whole world through your family line who I am and the relationship that you have with me. Right there from the very beginning, Adam and Eve were, were, were marked out as sons and daughters of God and as servant kings and queens, if you will. They had a responsibility to be in relationship with God and to make God's name famous among the nations. What nations? Well, all the ones that would, would come in the future. We could go right through this storyline of creation and fall. You know, we get done with Genesis 3, and I don't know about you, but if we stopped before we got to that wonderful verse 15, of the, the promised seed that would come, who would be bruised, but would ultimately do what? Crush the head of the serpent would put Satan down and would be Christ the victor. I'm telling you, if we don't get to that verse in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I am totally, like, I don't know, depressed or whatever it is. I'm, I'm totally saddened and mortified because we have absolutely no hope. But we have hope because the promised seed was given, and eventually through the family of Seth, Jesus Christ comes, and you and I have redemption. So the whole story of the gospel, it can be simply summed up in creation and fall and Redemption and consummation. That's a big fancy word for the end of time and a beginning of, of all future time, if you will. The consummation of this portion of the history, the beginning of the next. So, with that, the gospel story is this wonderful thing that God has called us to, to, to speak, to live out. So my question then is this. we got to ask, how's the church doing? How well is the church doing taking the gospel to the nations? We have the same command in our life as Adam and Eve had in the garden. 
We have a responsibility to make God's name famous among all the nations, to take his glory and fill the earth with his glory. That's what he's called us to do. Well, how well is the church doing? Well, there's still nearly 6,000 people groups who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Let that dwell for a minute. Just soak that in. There are billions of people who have never heard this simple word, Jesus. Yet most of us, well, think about it. We're sitting in a beautiful facility. God's graced your church with this place, and that's good. There's probably pews, Bible pews. No, maybe. I'm not sure. All of you probably have three or four or five or six copies of the Bible at home. You can read it because it's in a language that you understand, that I understand. Yet there are billions of people around this world tonight that have never heard the word Jesus. They don't have this wonderful book in their language. One of the things I love, when my daughter Mackenzie, I don't know, she was four or five, five or six, I guess, she began praying every time we would do our devotions in, in the evening together. And when it, when it was her time or she volunteered to pray before we read the word, she always includes, and even to this day as a 15-year-old, 15-year-old, she still includes a prayer that God would raise up men and women who could translate the Bible into people's language that have never heard it before, so that they could hear the name Jesus. I didn't teach my kids to pray that. It's her heart. It's her heart because she loves the Word, and she wants the nations to hear the Word of God. So how's the church doing? What about your family? What about you? Where is, where is our heart that the nations might know, that the nations might hear the name of Jesus proclaimed? What we're talking about is living missionally in a frantic world. We're all busy. We all got crazy schedules. We're all overcommitted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How's the church doing? Well, a, a recent research project by uh, George Barna and their research group indicates several things here. Let me give you a, a little bit about how the church is doing. After surveying more than 5,000 people, here's what they've discovered. That the church in North America, which we're a part of, the church in North America is less theologically literate we don't know as much as we used to know as the church. We, we are more ingrown and less outreach-oriented. Matter of fact, it indicated that for those who, born-again evangelical Christians, it, it was right before Easter when this portion of the survey was done, they asked a very simple question, how many of you intend on inviting an unchurched person, or inviting anyone, actually, I think it said, to church with you at Easter, on Easter? Any guess of how many? One out of three. Man, Easter is like an easy picking holiday, right? Christmas, easy picking holiday to bring people to just hear the sound of the gospel and experience what true, authentic worship is like. Um, the North American church is less interested in spiritual principles. They're more desirous of learning pragmatic solutions for life. In other words, don't give me the hard road through spiritual disciplines to get to God and get to know God and get to understand his will for my life. Give me easy, pragmatic solutions. Just, just fix me quickly. Y'all, knowing God intimately is, is, is joyful, but there's labor in it. Would you agree with that statement? I mean, we don't just come... We, any relationship takes what? Effort, time, work. 
The North American church is devoid of significant influence on culture and individual lives, yet what were Adam and Eve told to do? They were rulers, so are we. We are supposed to craft culture. We're supposed to make it different. Matter of fact, this morning, I teach in, uh, in our church, uh, Sojourn Community Church in Louisville area. I'm involved in our kids' ministry. So this morning, 22 kids in class, Sojourn Kids. And we're talking about Matthew chapter 5. And we get to that 13 and 14, 15 verse right there. And we talked about what it meant to be salt and what it meant to be light in a very dark and perverse society. Guess what? Four-year-olds, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, eight-year-olds, 80-year-olds, we're all given the same directive. We are to have relationship with God. We are sons and daughters of God in his image, but we're also, as created in his image, we are to be his representatives in the world in a way that we image him, in a way that we mirror and reflect his glory, and we're to have an effect on society and culture. I tried to take my daughters to a movie yesterday. I'm spinning down through the Flickster app or whatever app it was that was on my phone. And I'm, I'm cheap, so I'm looking at the uh, $2, $3 theater, right? There's like nothing. And then I start looking at the other theaters. Well, maybe I'll spend 8 or 10 bucks on a movie. And yeah, I couldn't. And it was one of those moments, I'm not like railing on media, but it was one of those moments when I realized, man, how well are we doing making an impact on culture? Because God has given us this cultural mandate, if you will, that we are to shape society and culture. Well, that research goes on. Here is one good piece I like. Becoming more interested in participating in community action. Is that good news? That's good. And particularly in this study, it looked as if it, most of those numbers were driven by younger, the younger two generations. What that means is teenagers in this room, young college students, young professionals. It means this research is saying about you that you have a heart to make an impact. You have a heart to do something that matters in your community, in your neighborhood. This is good. The problem for the North American church, y'all, is this, though. Is it just community action for making us feel better, or is there a gospel foundation to what we're doing? Jesus said to the poor, you will always have them with you. So we're not going to solve that problem. But you, you and I can't read the Old Testament without being convinced and certain that God has a heart for those who are oppressed. He has a heart for those who are impoverished. He has a heart for those who are facing injustice. And so is our desire to step into our neighborhoods and into our communities, into our city. At Sojourn, we care about, and I trust your church does as well, one of our deals is we're in the city for the city. We are seeking gospel transformation of Louisville. In, we have multiple locations, but in one of them, right in just urban center of Louisville, there's 353 houses that are boarded up. That are boarded up. By God's grace, we're beginning to take one house at a time. And we're employing people who live in that neighborhood, who have the skills but have no jobs. But in the middle of all that, why don't we do that? Is it just to see better, prettier neighborhoods and no boarded up plywood windows? The answer is no. It's an opportunity to build relationships that we might express the gospel in their lives. Community action is a gorgeous thing, but divorced, divorced from the gospel 
and from mission and from that mandate that's been given in Genesis 1 and 2 to Adam and Eve and therefore to us, if it's divorced of that, it has no power. So let me pause for a moment. What are we doing? How are we doing? What is your story? We've talked about the gospel story. What about your story? Hear me. Our story is wrapped up in the bigger gospel story. Our relationships are wrapped up in it. Matter of fact, why is marriage so important? Lots of reasons, but why is it so important? Anybody? It's a covenant. It's a picture of the covenant. But I did not plant that. Tell you, that's awesome. It is a covenant relationship that we have between husband and wife, and it's a mirror image of what? The relationship that Christ has with his what? His bride, his church. And we can't break that relationship. That's why it is so imperative that we labor hard to remain well in that relationship. And so even in that marriage relationship, for those of you who are married, listen, you are every single day are putting the gospel on display. And it's either a pretty picture or it's not. Mark Dever said this of the church. He said that the church is the gospel this is probably this might when this might be worth writing down. The church is the gospel made visible. The church is the gospel made visible. Pause for a moment, think about what that means in your neighborhood. If someone in your neighborhood d- doesn't go to church, doesn't know Christ, doesn't know much at all about God or spiritual things, yet they know you're a Christian, by observing you in your neighborhood and the way your family functions, what is their picture and their image of God? Yes, but of the church. It's an astounding question for us to ponder in our lives. So our story, our relationships are wrapped up in this bigger gospel story. Our future, right, is wrapped up in it. Our purpose, our identity is tied up in this. So who are we? As children of God, redeemed children of God, if you're here tonight and you already know Christ as your Savior, you are a redeemed child of God. Amen? Y'all can do that. I might actually start preaching if y'all start doing that. Listen, because we're redeemed children of God, we have a brand new identity. We have a holy new nature. The old one has been what? Put to death. It's amazing, though, how the habits from that old nature seem to just crawl back up, don't they? Side story, my daughter, uh, oldest daughter, Dayla, when she was three and a half, uh, four, I guess, three and a half, four years old, I remember one night we were tucking her into bed, and we had read this scripture talking about God's love is as high as the heavens are above the earth, and, and that he is so gracious that he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west, and we had talked about that, and, and uh, then we were tucking her in, and she said, Dad, she said, you know, she said, you said that, that, that God moves the, our sin as far as the east is from the west, and he buries our sins in the depth of the sea to remember it no more. She said, but some days it sure seems like it comes crawling back up on the beach. And I'm thinking, child, oh my, what you have prophetically spoken is so true in our own lives. But here's the good thing. We are redeemed children of God. And because of that, we have a holy new nature. And because of that, we have a whole new identity. Now, I'm going to get on a soapbox here for just a minute, but let me quickly tell you what I think our identity is in Christ. Um, Don't have time to go through all the text, um, but we are worshipers. 
We're worshipers. We, we are disciples. We are learners in Christ. Because I'm a redeemed child of God, guess what? I naturally want to worship him. Yes? It's, it's normal for the Christian to want to worship the God who has saved their soul. It is normal for the Christian, for the believer, the redeemed child of God, to want to learn at God's feet. We want to pick up his word and we want to study it. We want to marinate and saturate our lives with the word of God. That's normal for the Christian. If you're saying, Michael, I don't have a drive to study the word. I don't have a drive to learn more deeply, more things. That's abnormal. Can I say that? Listen, as, as redeemed children of God, we're family. You all are a local family of believers. I come interloping tonight into your congregation. But because I am a redeemed child of God, and those of you who are redeemed in Christ, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. I've been married almost 20 years now, and I remember early on in our marriage when it really struck me. I mean, I knew it biblically and theologically, but it really, it just hit me about a year into marriage. Like, this marriage thing ends upon death. It ends. And like, I won't be married in heaven. That bothered me. And Ginger's like, well, yeah. I'm thinking, great, that's not what you're supposed to say. You know, she's supposed to be saddened by that as well. What I began to realize, and then particularly as our three daughters began to grow, is that the truer relationship that I have with my wife and with my three daughters is that we're brother and sister in Christ. That's a truer relationship than me being their father or me being Ginger's husband because it is the permanent relationship. It is the one that lasts forever because of my union, our union in Christ, we are family. Peace has been passed among us and we get to enjoy those familial relationships. Side note, soapbox moment, what if the church were to get that? We wouldn't have Second Friendship Baptist Church down the road, would we? Hopefully we don't have one of those in, in this community. But you know what I'm saying, right? Family, you can't walk out. Even if you don't, if you, you don't like what's going on in somebody's life, that's what family is about. So as redeemed children of God, we're family. As redeemed children of God, we are servants. How many times have your ministry leaders and pastors in the life of this church, or probably, again, not your church, let's take it somewhere else, at many churches have to, I'm sure it's not the case here, but in other churches I've been in, where they have to virtually beg people to serve God in, this, in, a, in a church. How ridiculous is that? Because the, the natural thing for the Christian to do is what? Serve. Why? Because we are servants of the king. That's what Adam and Eve were. They were servant king, servant queen. That's what they were. That's what the language even means, if you go back and dig into it. And guess what? We also are witnesses. What did Jesus say? He says, listen, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will have power and you will be my witnesses where jerusalem jerusalem this is your jerusalem this is your jerusalem how's the witnessing going how's the display of god's glory going in your community in your neighborhood what's the the, the church is the gospel made visible what does that look like among your people in jerusalem in judea in sumeria in a, to the uttermost parts of the world we get to the end of the book of Acts, and where do we find Paul? In the city of Rome, the uttermost parts of the earth, in essence. So the gospel's gone forth. 
So what does it mean then for us to be witnesses? And that's where we're going to go. So my question is simply this, and we don't have time to pick through these, but I want you to reflect at some point on these three questions. How do we live out our identity as a community of believers? How do we live out our identity as all of these five identifiers that I spoke of a moment ago, how do we live those out, particularly as witnesses, and that's what we're talking about tonight, how do we live that out as a family unit? We'll talk about that more the second session. We'll start getting into some nitty-gritty, here's how you make it happen. And then as an individual, whether you're seven years old and you know Jesus, or you're 77 and you know Jesus as Savior, how are you living out that witness identity? Let me pause for a minute and just talk about the identities one more time. Because here's my struggle. I think what we've done in the church, the mistake that we've made, is we have, pretend, we, we have put on the church, we've said, here are the functions that the church is to do. The church is functionally, we're supposed to worship. We're supposed to evangelize. We're supposed to um, disciple. We're supposed to be in fellowship and communion with one. Is that all true? The answer is yes. But hear, hear me for a minute. If we think that those are just simply functions of the church, that means it's something we go and we what? Do. But if it's our identity as redeemed children of God, if I'm a worshiper, if I'm a witness, if I'm a disciple, if I'm a member of the family, if that's who I am at my very, the depths of my being, my identity, if that's the case, then guess what? That is who I am. And I, I, that's what I, this is bad English, that's what I be. Um, that, that is the being, that's the essence of who I am, rather than something that I do. And it's out of that identity then, y'all, that I do share my faith, that I do serve in the body and in the community. Do you see the difference? So, listen, God has always chosen a group of people through whom he wants to make himself known. In the Old Testament, it was the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, we see it in the, the church, right? He's always had a called out group of people whom he wants to make himself known through. And in, he, there, there's this fancy phrase, but he, there's this divine preference. means God prefers to use people. Divine preference for human agency. That means for some crazy reason, God chose to use us to share and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me pause. Why did he do that? Wouldn't there be a more efficient, more productive way than using a bunch of people like us? Have you ever thought about that question? It's his choice. I always tell my students, the easy answer on this one is because it brings God the greatest amount of glory. I mean, that's like the go-to answer, right? And you know what? God knows that as we engage in the Great Commission work, as we engage in making his name famous among the nations, we ourselves are changed and formed and shaped in his very image. There is something about having to teach the word of God that causes us to begin to be more obedient to the word of God. There's something about stepping into serving people who are in desperate need that makes us a more generous people. There's something about coming to the hospital and sitting with a person who is lingering toward death that makes us more merciful and compassionate. Everybody agree? So yeah, it gives, yes, it gives him greater glory 
but he also knew that it would form us and shape us in his image in a greater manner, in a greater way. So back to our fall, uh, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation for just a moment. I've put on the screen here a simple little image of creation power. In Genesis 1 and 2, God put on great display his power, right? And he made all things. From nothing he made something. And he said about his creation that it was very good. Well, it was good, and then about humanity, it was very good. And then he empowered mankind and gave us a ministry of ruling to have that dominion over the earth. That's what we learn. And Adam and Eve had a set of boundary markers. Said, man, you can enjoy everything except you can't mess with this tree, right? Everything else, here are the boundaries. Enjoy, fill with pleasure, enjoy me, enjoy one another, enjoy the fruit, enjoy everything. It's all good. Enjoy it, but stay within these bounds. Yet they blew that out of the water, usurped that authority that God had given them, stepped over those bounds, and they were then bound by sin. The power of sin and death overcame them, and they were longing and needing a greater power. And so we get to the place where redemption power comes on the scene. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ comes. He lives a perfect life. He's killed on the cross for our sins and raised from the dead and then he gives instructions to his disciples and those instructions are very simple what are they all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth go therefore and make what disciples baptizing them right and teaching them to obey all that i've commanded you and i'll be with you always even to the end of the age and so here's the deal we've been given this command to go and make disciples and so we've been given this beautiful ministry of reconciliation on your sheet, it simply says this. Therefore, this is from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us a message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. How crazy is that? It is pretty crazy, but it's gloriously crazy. And y'all, we get the opportunity to be the one. Paul says to the church at Corinth, how will they know unless they have a preacher, Right? Well, how will they know unless they hear the word? And how will they hear unless they have a proclaimer of God's word? That's us. We get to preach the word to people. And look, that might just be a simple, how can I pray for you? Maybe the beginning of preaching the word with someone. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So my friends, Christ showed his great creation power and then he gave us a ministry of ruling. He showed his great redemption power when mankind was lost and dead in sin and in bondage, even to the very earth that they were supposed to have dominion over, and he gave us a ministry of reconciliation. And guess what? That's the season that we are in in this great salvation history. How long do we have the ministry of reconciliation as the church? How long? Till he comes. Yeah, and he shows his great consummation power. He, he returns, there's new heavens and new earth, all things are made right, the peoples are judged, the, the nations are judged, and all things are put right. 
and what will be will be greater than what was. I'm looking forward to it. I'm only 44, but I'm already beginning to turn my eye toward what that future is going to look like and what that experience is going to be. And throughout all of eternity, he will give those who are redeemed children of God a ministry of reigning. We're going to reign. We are co-heirs with Christ. We're going to rule and reign with him for all of eternity. Our ministry, our empowerment, our service is not done when Christ returns. It's not done when we die. We still have responsibilities. We still have ministry that will take place for all of eternity, a ministry of reigning and ruling with Christ. And so, all that said, that identity that you have in you, a new person in Jesus Christ, out of that comes this idea of living missionally, even in the midst of a frantic world. God's calling us to be witnesses. Because I am redeemed, I am naturally a witness. And if I am not witnessing, something's awry. Something's not right in my life. And some of you are quivering. You think, man, what you listen, just speak what God's done in your life. Find those moments. It's not this big, huge thing of going and knocking on all doors. Oh, that's not bad either. It's finding relationships, stepping into them, doing real life with people, and at the right opportune moments, God will give you the privilege and the, the opportunity to speak the truth of the gospel. And we overthink evangelism way too much. It is who we, we are witnesses by nature if we're redeemed. And so just do what you do. Just live, where you, just live normally and open your mouth and love. Love God, love others. As we wrap up, God's calling us to make his name famous among the nations. We see that in Matthew 28. We've already spoken to that. Um, we see it in Revelation 5. There's going to be this great, glorious gathering of the nations from every tribe and tongue. Matter of fact, it says this in, in uh, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. It's on the bottom of your sheet. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Those very people that my daughter are praying that God will send a missionary to that can write down the scriptures in their language. What about you? Teenagers, listen to me for a minute. Children, listen to me for a minute. Senior adult, listen to me for a minute. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's you that God's calling to go forth to the nations. Why is it, y'all, that we assume that we're going to get a job down the street? Young folks, why is it that we assume we're going to go to college and then go work at such and such a place? Maybe our first question ought to be, where in the world could God possibly send me to do that same vocation? I can go be a businessman on the other side of the world. I've got missionary friends who are travel agents. That's what they do, travel agents. I've got a friend that's in Istanbul. He's a travel agent, employs 18 um, uh, Turkish folks. And all of it, honestly, is just a platform to do what? Share the gospel. What are we breathing into our children's lives? What are we doing with our retirement time, men and women? Man, this is what God's called us to. There's going to be a day when we're going to gather and the nations are going to be there, all the redeemed children of God. I don't even know what it sounds like. I have no idea. I talked to one of our PhD in worship, uh, Christian worship this week, and they were taking a seminar on cross-cultural understanding of worship. And I did not know this, but there's five different music systems throughout the world. 
We're used to the Western version. That's why some of the music in other parts of the world sounds weird to us. Five, I said, so what's that going to sound like in heaven? And which system are we going to? He said, I don't know, but it's all going to work out just fine. Are you ready for that day? Because that's what God's calling us to, is to make his name famous among the nations. What does that require of us? Very quickly, we wrap up here. The gospel-driven church, the gospel-driven family, the gospel-driven believer. This is Matthew 28. We go in Christ's authority. All authority has been given to me, is what Jesus said, on he- in heaven and on earth. We go in his authority. We live intentionally. It says go. So even as we're going, we're going with a sense of intentionality. We have a heart for our neighbors and the nations, make disciples of all nations. Listen, y'all, the gospel expression starts at our dinner table. It goes to the end of the driveway, and it proceeds across the street, and then it proceeds across the county, and then it proceeds across the state, and then across the nation to the nations. Do you have a heart for the people around you? The gospel-driven church, the gospel-driven family, etc., lives in biblical community. It says, baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. wish I had time to unpack that. It's a statement of our uh, repentance. It's a statement of Christ's great work in our lives. And it's a statement that we've stepped into life in the church. The gospel-driven type of family or church just passionately teaches the scriptures. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. And he said, I'll be with you always. Guess what? We also depend on Christ's power and his presence in our life. We can't pull off this missional living in a frantic world without Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. Christ, as you read the New Testament and the, old, the, the prophecies in the Old Testament, Christ is dependent. I don't have time to unpack this either. Um, but Christ is dependent upon the Holy Spirit to carry out his ministry. Why would we think we are any less? I don't know what's next. I have no idea. All right, that's where we're going when we get back. We're going to talk about missionally driven families and uh, developing a missional mindset, maintaining that missional mindset, and multiplying that missional mindset among the peoples around you. Let me pray for us, and then we'll break up in groups. Father, thank you for just our few minutes together. Help us to think, um, as a church, Father, help us to think more missionally, God. Let us understand that, that we are witnesses by our very nature and that from the very beginning with Adam and Eve, you've called us, us, your people. You've called your select group of people, God. You've called us to go to the nations and to put your glory on display and tell them of the good news of Christ and his redemption. Father, whatever that means for us, wherever we need to repent and begin to step in a life of faith and obedience in this direction, God, I pray that you would do that in the life of this church collectively, Father in the life of your church as a whole, and in our lives and our families. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Dr. White.